Great. Turn your Bibles to Psalm chapter 130. That's where we're going to start this morning and end our time actually there in God's Word. A different sermon, different sorts of sermon this morning. Psalm 130. I'll read the entirety of the chapter, which is verses 1 through 8. Psalm 130 is a song of ascents, which we talked about last week. And verse 1 picks up this way. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits. And in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. This sends the reading of God's holy and infallible word. May the grass wither and the flower fade, but the word of our God, may it stand forever. Last week, in beginning our series on, entitled The Pilgrimage <clears throat> with the Psalms, I we referred to and, and, and talked about that image of pilgrimage or journeying to describe the Christian life. And we started out in the Songs of Ascent, which are songs that the um, Old Testament believers would have sung as they were up, coming up from their homelands up to Jerusalem for the various festivals throughout the worship year of the people of Israel. And often, in, in the image that we used last week in regards to journeying and pilgriming, what we often think about and the sense that we get is physical and geographic movements, that we are moving from point A to point B. And that is certainly true of the Christian life. We are going someplace, and it is a physical place. We won't simply be spirits in heaven. The presence of God is a physical place. And where you are going, literally and physically, both spiritually and physically, matters. Don't let the, the silliness, of the, the tropes of this world that would say something along this line, like the destination is not what matters. What matters is the journey in getting there. That's utter silliness. That's ridiculousness because this, we know this is ridiculous because we know inherently where you are going affects the journey. The destination is going to have more to say more about your journey than any other aspect of the journey itself. So we are going to someplace physically. We are moving through this world and through this land into the promised land of heaven, the very presence of God. At the same time, though, the scriptures understand that the pilgrimage that we are on is also a pilgrimage of the soul. It is a pilgrimage of change. It is a spiritual journey, a journey of the heart, so to speak. It is a journey not simply of getting somewhere, but it's a journey of becoming in other words, for the purpose of the journey of life is twofold. The journey brings us geographically and relationally and physically into the very presence of God and the delights found there. But the journey also has the, has the role in the process of reshaping us and maturing us into the fullness of Christ Jesus. This is what Paul talks about in Ephesians chapter 4 when he says that God has given for his church prophets and apostles and teachers and evangelists, these various folks, to lead the church and to equip the saints for ministry. And then he goes on to say this, to equip the saints for ministry until we attain to mature manhood the fullness of Christ Jesus. You are going someplace and you are becoming someone or like someone. And what's nice is they're the same place. 
The place that we, the destination of our life is the very presence of God and also the very one that we are seeking to be like, to live fully into the image that he has made us to be, is Jesus Christ. And so this morning what I want to talk about is that particular spiritual journey. The heart journey that we are on. The shaping and transformation of our souls. In other words, I'm going to give attention to our hearts. Now, the heart imagery in the Bible, this is just talked about, used all throughout the scriptures. But we can often confuse it. We often think about the heart in terms in regards to the affections and the emotions. And that's exactly what we're going to talk about this morning. But the heart actually encompasses all facets of the soul. All senses of the soul. Let me, let me uh, quote from Tim Keller who talks about the heart and describes it this way. He says, according to the Bible, the heart is not simply the seat of the emotions, but it's also the source of our fundamental commitments, hopes, and trust. And from the heart flow our thinking, our feelings, and our actions. I'm going to start this morning by simply communicating that you have three, I'll say three senses spiritually. You have the volitional, which is your will. You have your intellectual, the way you think. And you have the emotional, the way you feel. And all three of them communicate the deep desires of your heart. They communicate what is going on at the depths of who you are and your soul. Did you hear the description that Keller uses here? Uses on the, Biblically, the heart of man involves all three aspects of those things. Some in, in recent years in a curriculum that I have become um, familiar with use this and use these terms, the levels of the hearts. And they would refer to and say that the emotions are the closest to communicating what is truly going on in our hearts. And I think that's actually true because the emotions speak most honestly about what is happening in our souls. Now, that's actually what makes them the most scary. Your thoughts, you have time to filter a little bit. Your actions, you definitely have time to filter. But your emotions just th- seem to pour out of your heart and your soul. The reason, so that's what I'm going to focus on this morning is to give us a, 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 a look at a theology of the emotions, and particularly as we see them in the Psalms, and the role that they play in the Christian life. Now, the reason why I want to focus on the emotions is twofold this morning. First and foremost is this, because if there is an area where conservative Christians, which my read on you guys is that's who you are. Now, conservative does not mean where you politically stand, although there's often a lot of connections there. But what I'm talking about is you have a, a, a traditionalist way of viewing the scriptures in the Christian life. All right? Now, in, 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 in the, I would say the conservative evangelical world, emotions often get short shrift. We don't pay attention to them near as much as we ought to. Now, if I was in a different context, say a Pentecostal church, a charismatic church, my, what I say here this morning might be slightly different. It might be slightly different because there's often too much focus on emotional, the emotional aspect of the Christian life. But we as conservative evangelicals, and particularly as us white middle class Presbyterians, for those of you that that describes you, this is definitely something that we struggle with, showing our emotions. All right, second though, and the more kind of exegetical issue is this, is we are diving into a series on the Psalms. And to me, the very power of the Psalms is this is it the reason why for centuries upon centuries, while Christians have engaged so heavily and loved the Psalms and felt such great comfort from them, is because the Psalms speak directly to our emotions. Listen, there are very aspects of the scriptures. Some speak more to your mind, to your thinking. They, they engage you with lofty thoughts of God. Other places, they engage you into action. You read James. James is saying, you've got to do some stuff. You better get doing some stuff. 
but the Psalms, the Psalms are engaging us in how we feel. And we're going to walk through the Psalms of the Psalms this summer, in particular looking at the experiences we have as a, as a Christian and the emotions that we have in light of them. So this morning I want to discuss the importance of paying attention to and the ability of giving voice to your emotions as a means of deepening your relationship with God. I want to encourage us and convince us to open up the door and say, let's pay attention to what we're feeling a little bit. You may have felt really uncomfortable this morning with the way we led worship. We were making you and forcing you to feel, to engage with things that are under the surface, and that's what I want to do with you this morning. Oddly enough, though, I'm going to go through, the, through your minds to do so, um, because we're still Presbyterians. Um, uh, this is not an overly emotional sermon, actually. Uh, this is actually pretty robust theologically and kind of, I use a lot of long quotes, so try to bear with me this morning, and I'll try to make this um, as engaging as possible. First thing I want to say to you this morning in regards to the, emo- uh, the emotions is that they're important. The importance of the emotions, and for two reasons I want to tell you why. First, our love of God, we are commanded that in our love of God, it must involve the emotions. Our love of God must involve the emotions it is love in your expression of love is more than emotion. There's actions involved, but it is not less than emotion. There is this, sometimes maybe say it, some people say it for good reason, but I think it's somewhat of a silly notion that people would say love is an action, it's not a feeling. I think that's false. I think it's creating a false dichotomy within the human heart. Let me give you a little bit of an example of this from Scripture. One of piece of evidence for this is found in 1 Corinthians 13, which is the love chapter in, in, in 1 Corinthians, where Paul says this. He says that you can give away all of your possessions and still not have love, which means this. You can have the activity of love and still not be full of love. John Piper talks about this, and he has done more in the last couple of dec- centuries. He's really old. In the last couple of decades... That's why he's so wise. He's just ancient. He's like an ent. So in the last couple of decades, and talking about the life of the emotions in the Christian's life, and he talks about how, he uses the example of if you're loving your wife, husbands, that if you simply walk up to her and give her flowers and say, I'm giving you flowers on your birthday, it's my duty. It's just what I do. I don't really feel that loving towards you right now. She's not going to feel loved in that moment. That's not true love. In In fact, to say that you have no feeling, would, to say that feeling is not a part of, a, of, of love would actually do something damage to the gospel of Jesus Christ. You see, we see in the scriptures that Jesus had joy in sacrificing himself for us. Joy is the emotion of love. It is the ingredient to having pure love. Think about how appalling it would be if Jesus Christ went to the cross and said, I'm dying here. I hate these people. I don't even know why I'm doing this, but love's an activity. Love's an action. And this is what you do when you love people. That's not what he did, is it? No, Philippians 2 said, For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. That's an emotion. God has an emotion towards us. Agape love is seen in the joy of of God. And this is true for the Christian life as well. Joy is essential for us in truly obeying God and obeying him rightly. The scriptures are clear. If you read the Psalms, if you read the Psalms along with us this summer... You cannot go maybe a singular page in the Psalms without hearing the command to rejoice. 
the command. You are commanded to feel joy about the Lord. This is talked about in other places of the Christian life. Peter says this, that even in the midst of joys, in the midst of sorrows and sufferings in this life, and we have to acknowledge those, and we'll talk about that more in a minute. He says this in 1 Peter 1.8, though you do not now see Jesus, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Christian life is to be expressed with emotion, is to feel emotion. And once again, John Piper, in talking about this, has, has gleaned so much from a great theologian in American history named Jonathan Edwards. Edwards is one of the greatest thinking men in American history and in Christianity in general. And yet he wrote a book called Affections. And here's what he says. He says, Edwards, and, and Piper quoting Edwards says that we have two great surging faculties within us. I think we have three. I think we add the will and the volitional aspect too. But thinking faculty that glorifies God by thinking rightly about him and a feeling faculty that glorifies God by feeling rightly about him. Your feelings matter if you're going to express right love for God. So your feelings are important. They're important for truly and rightly obeying God's commands and loving him. Therefore, that means this. Your emotions cannot be ignored. Then it leads me to the second point on the surface in regards to what we want to talk about here in regards to the importance of your emotions. And that is this. The emotions, maybe more than any of the other faculties of your life, are a mirror to our souls. They reflect what is going on in our hearts. One writer put it this way. He said, the emotions vocalize the inner workings of our souls. Of the faculties of the human heart, volitional, intellectual, emotional, the emotions are the most, in, most naturally instinctive responses of our hearts. They are a voice that can tell us how we are dealing and interacting with a fallen world, how we are dealing with hurtful people, and with a God that very often we cannot understand. Sat in a class this morning about the aseity of God. How many of you understand the aseity of God? We don't understand the self-existence of God. It is hard to get into emotionally engaged with. The emotions of the soul reveal who we are. They reveal what we long for. And ultimately, they reveal how we're doing with God. How our relationship with him is going. Emotions can tell us so much about the state of our souls. Now, this is different. In, in kind of conservative evangelical world, we don't give enough um, we, we, we look at the emotions as if they are the most fallen of our, of our faculties. But in, I would say, in the more secular world, in particular since a Freudian kind of psychology has come along, we view emotions in our secular world as simply being amoral. Amoral. Now, it leads to the same thing. We don't pay attention to them. See, in the world where you don't see your emotions as fallen, they, what we are told is just follow your heart. Right? Just follow your heart. That's all gotten us into a great place in life, hasn't it? Just following your heart has gotten us in trouble left and right. You see, your emotions are theological, brothers and sisters. They are deeply, they are not amoral. They are, there are good emotions, there are evil emotions, and there are righteous emotions. And they don't necessarily fall in line with whether they're dark or light. Anger can be a righteous emotion, Sadness and grief can be a righteous emotion, but they can also be dark emotions as well. They can be sinful emotions. Listening to our emotions opens the door to asking hard and difficult questions about life. And it offers and opens the door for us to ask those questions to God. But more than any of these things, our emotions reveal how we're doing with God, how our relationship with Him is going. Here's how often we normally think of our emotions in terms of the horizontal. 
You see, our, our emotions do commerce with our environment, with our circumstances, right? Suffering. There's something you experience, the death of a loved one, and you feel grief and sorrow inside. External circumstances do commerce with what is going on inside of our hearts and our lives. Relational conflict causes emotional strife in our hearts. But whenever there is things going on uh, horizontally and we're doing commerce that way, ultimately, though, the dialogue and the conversation of our emotions is vertical with God's. He is the one in his sovereignty and his providence that has allowed these things to go on in your life. Dan Allinger, who is a um, well-known Christian counselor and who I've taken much from both in this sermon and will take much more as this series goes along, he wrote a book called The Cry of the Soul which one, with one of the best Old Testament scholars, a guy named Tripper Longman. They wrote a book together uh, on the, the emotions exhibited in the Psalms. But he gives the illustration telling a friend, of sitting with a friend who once told him, I feel like I'm part of a cosmic county fair bumper car ride. I know in life I'm going to eventually get hit. It's only a matter of when and how hard. And Allender said that he then asked his friend if his sense of dread was related to God. The man said, oh, not really. I just wonder when things are going to collapse or when I'm going to get knocked down again. Those are theological statements. We may deny that that's not about God, but that's simply not the case. Allender went on to comment on this exchange and saying, all dread is related to the question, is life predictable? All anger is related to the question, is life just? But he says, change the word life for God. And the questions become deeply personal. Is God predictable? Is God just? Is God good? The reason for looking inside and understanding our emotions is to listen to and ponder what we feel in order to be moved to the far deeper issue of what our hearts are doing in dialogue with God. Many of you, your hearts are crying out and screaming out to God, but you're ignoring it and you're simply saying, that's not good, that's not good, that's not good. I'm not going to think about that. I don't want to deal with that. Emotions are the gauge of our soul. To ignore your emotions means you're ignoring the most relationally and theologically weighty dialogue of your life. Do you hear me? You are always internally having a dialogue with God. And that dialogue is primarily run by your emotions. And if you ignore it, you're ignoring the most fundamentally theological conversation in your life. The one that's going to help you get to know God the best. Emotions are the language of the soul. They're the cry that gives the heart voice. To understand the deepest passions and desires and convictions, we must listen to the cries of our souls. We must. Listening is the first step to altering destructive emotions in your life that are exhibited. Are you pursuing God? Your emotions will tell you. Your emotions will tell you whether you're pursuing God. Are you pursuing false gods? Your emotional life will provide you wonderful clues. Now, this does not mean it would be nice. It would be nice if it was very simple. If I felt angry, that means I was moving away from God. If I felt happiness, that means I'm moving towards God. But that's not how it goes, is it? Often in your moments of greatest anger and grief are the moments in which you actually move closest to God. Here's the diagnostic question for your emotions. Here's the question for our emotions. The question we must learn to ask is, are my feelings leading me toward God or away from God? Are my emotions leading me toward God or away from God? You can be angry at God and actually move towards him. That's what the psalmist does. He cries out in a rage, but the place where he goes in his anger and his wondering and his doubts is the feet of the king. So ah, there, that's the importance 
of our emotions and helping us understand how we're doing in our relationship with God, it leads us to that diagnostic question, is our emotions going towards or away from God? And we see that we also, we must be emotional in our relationship with him. We must be. All right, well, in order to understand our emotions, we also have to understand why it's so dangerous to ignore them. Part of understanding our emotions involves understanding why we try to run away from them or suppress them or quiet them in our hearts. Why do we ignore our emotions? I'm going to give you three reasons. The first is this. One, we're told to do so. Your parents told you to do so. My wife and I have become convicted, particularly over the last year, of the way we interact, in particular with one of our children, when they exhibit their emotions. The immediate response as a parent so often is, hush, hush, would you just stop crying? Please, please, anything, I'll do anything, just stop crying. Right, this is the parent in the grocery store whose child is emoting significant amounts of anger at them. There's bargaining, right? Right? You go through like the five stages of grief. You're angry with them, and then you're bargaining, and then there's weeping by the parents. And finally, just simply, you give in. Right? Our, our kids are expressing emotions, and so often as parents, what we just simply tell them to do is don't express that. Now, we have to tell them and teach them about self-control. We'll get to that in just a second. But in the evangelical Christian world, too often we are told to simply ignore our emotions. It's like we view our emotions as more fallen than other parts of who we are. Whereas the secular world views our emotions as less fallen, or not fallen at all, but as being the heights of who we are. We conflate often, I think what we do often do is we conflate the suppression and control of the way in which we express and voice our emotions with listening to our emotions. There's a difference there. We are called to be self-controlled people, which means this. When you get angry, that doesn't mean that you're listening to your emotions by taking a baseball back to the furniture in the house. Right? That is, that is an inappropriate lack of self-control. But let me tell you something. If I'm sitting in a meeting with some people and someone says something that angers me, I, sh- I can't ignore that. That doesn't mean I should just start lashing out in anger towards other people. But I do need to eventually go back and evaluate, why did what that person say so make me so viscerally angry deep down inside? There's a difference. We, too often we have conflated self-control with, with means we just ignore the emotions in general. So too often we're told we simply need to ignore the emotions. The second reason, the third reason, get a little bit deeper though. The second reason we don't, is that we don't want to feel. Because feeling exposes the tragedy of our world and the darkness of our hearts. Remember I just said, I think the emotions speak more honestly about the state of our hearts. And frankly, we don't want to listen to that because right, what we find there is no good. It's no bueno. It's nasty, and it's a mess, and it's complex, and it's extremely difficult to deal with. No wonder we don't want to feel. Feeling exposes the illusion of our life that we are safe, that we are good, and that life is predictable. In reality, it's all, it's anything but. One explanation for why we avoid feeling is it's just simply too painful to feel. You know this, to feel hurt, hurts. To feel hurt, hurts. To feel shame, shames. To feel sorrow intensifies our sorrow. In one sense, that's so true, but it's so interesting because people often, not only do they want to avoid the bad emotions, but they actually end up avoiding the good emotions as well. Joy and happiness and delight and glee. You see, so often what we do, if you're like me, my dad has always bragged that he's a defensive pessimist, that he always keeps his expectations low. So I'm going to give you a little bit of, I'm going to therapize my dad on stage for you. I don't know, maybe he's trying to hide from something. You see, here's the reality of the life in which we live in. 
We know that even in today's happiness, tomorrow it's probably going to be gone. And it would simply just be easier to be flatlined than it would be to do this, wouldn't it? And so not only do we get rid of the negative emotions, we get rid of the happy and the good emotions as well. This is why so often as people, we neither grieve nor we celebrate. We're just this. We're just this. That is not the way in which God has called us to live. So often, you see, last week we talked about the journey and how we we need to look forward. We need to remember looking back, but we also, a significant part of it is anticipating. But you understand, anticipating Anticipating come, brings us into the sense that we're not home. Dan Allender puts it exactly that way. He says, emotions propel us into the tragic recognition that we are not yet home. And it is tragic. It forces us to deal with reality. It's not easy to embrace the tragedy of the fall and our distance from home. Paul, Paul says this is what we're, we're going through. And in Romans 8, when he talks about all creation, it's not just human beings that have a problem with the fall. He says all creation is what? Groaning. Groaning. Because of our fallenness. So that's the second reason. The reason why we, don't, we ignore the emotions is because to feel hurts. Brings us into context with reality. Third, the complexity and confusion of our emotions makes us feel out of control. We don't know how to deal with our emotions. Listen, the reality is, this is not fair, but teenage girls, I'm sorry I'm going to pick on you. The reality, the reality, brothers and sisters, is all of us internally are 14-year-old girls. Now, I use that as a cliche. That's not fair because boys feel the same way. We have been wired to feel God made you an emotional being. But the problem is, is that our inner worlds are so complex, they confuse us. My child right now is having a confusing moment. <laughs> I won't do that to your kids, just mine. It's so they can go to counseling one day. <laughs> um, so often what we do is we strain out anything in order to gain control of our inner worlds. We want to flatline our emotions because it makes it easier to control the life that we have to understand it. But the Bible reveals that our world is complex. Our inner world is extremely complex, and we have made it infinitely more so in our sin. Jeremiah 17 says the heart is deceitful. That means it's difficult to read what is going on. The reason why your emotions are up and down is because your heart is fickle. It is deceitful, and therefore it is so, it's, it's so, it's so emotional to try to read your heart. To try to engage with it. This is our coping mechanism of life as we just simply try to ignore the emotions. Because instead of engaging with our true emotions and our painful realities, instead, what do we do? We choose, we choose coping mechanisms, don't we? Chuck Groat, who is a seminary professor of mine, he says this, that we create coping mechanisms to deal with life's pain and complexity. And he mentions Stockholm Syndrome. Stockholm Syndrome, which is the name that people have given the syndrome, where people who have been kidnapped begin to feel affection for their kidnappers. It's a means of emotionally protecting oneself, to create an alternate reality in the midst of something. I'm not going to deal with this. This is too painful. But he says this. The preservation, or the, um, the Stockholm Syndrome, is about coping. And coping is what we do to get through life's rough places. Faced with the familiar places of Egypt. He's writing in there in a book called Leaving Egypt about the journey that we take from slavery to sin in Egypt and all that that involves to the promised land and how we prefer our old ways. We prefer our old ways. That's what the Israelites did, right? They got out into the wilderness and they said, hey, slavery was better. We want to go back. 
Slavery was less painful. We want to go back. He goes and say, faced with the familiarities of Egypt in our own lives, we choose to stay and survive. We find ways to make slavery palatable. We don't deal with life's pain. How do you cope with life's pain? Often we choose stunted emotional responses to help us cope and to help us control. For example, men, brothers, this is probably 100% of us. Men, we, the way we communicate and express our pain is through what emotion? Anger. I realized this two years ago about myself that when I am doing emotionally well and engaging well with the Lord is I will cry because otherwise I'm just an angry man. All emotions in my life were being dropped and moved through the bucket that is known as anger. We would rather express anger. Why? It's a protection mechanism. You don't have to feel You don't have to appear weak. And so we just express it via anger. Another quote from Chuck DeGroat to help us understand this. said, in the Christian world, so often those who show no emotion, who can function with a seeming cool indifference are lauded for their maturity. But often such an evaluation is a mistaken trust. You are considered godly if you can handle difficult trials with a detached and apparently unruffled confidence. But this conclusion is wrong. There are times when lack of emotion is simply the byproduct of hardness and arrogance. The scriptures reveal that this absence of feelings is often a refusal to face the sorrow of life and the hunger of heaven. It is not the mark of maturity, but rather the boast of evil. Our refusal to embrace our emotions is often an attempt to escape the agony of childbirth and buttress the illusion of a safe world. It is an attempt to deal with God, with a God who does not immediately relieve our pain. So instead of wrestling with God, you choose coping mechanisms. Instead of handing your emotions and the difficulties of this life over the God who is in control... You choose to control things yourself through the various ways in which you choose to do so. And this has drastic negative effects for our Christian life. I think clearly, a clear negative effect of this is that it stunts your growth. Listen, if, if the emotions communicate to you what is going on in your heart, and the heart is the root of all the things that are pouring out of your life, and if you, but you don't pay attention to your emotions, then you are... You're cutting off your ability to get to the roots of your sins. So what you end up doing is you end up pulling the weed only at the surface. The sins of your life. You wonder why you've been dealing with pornography for 20 years. Because you've been, use, you've been doing surface mechanism for dealing with it. You wonder why that shopping addiction or that eating disorder is still there. There may be many reasons. But very much at the heart of it is the fact that perhaps you haven't let the gospel and let God deal with the full pain that is there at the bottom of it all. And so, man, you do this with your weeds, right? You pluck the top of it, but if you don't get that root, you're going to be right back out there next week plucking the same weed, aren't you? This is a reality with us. When we only deal with life's problems, though, on the surface, we never get to heart's pains and sufferings and the root of our issues and the cries of our soul. Here's what we end up doing. We end up developing a Band-Aid theology. A Band-Aid theology. You know what a Band-Aid does? It covers over the scars so we can ignore them. And many of us, that's what we have. We have a Band-Aid form of theology. And when you have a Band-Aid form of theology, what kind of God do you end up having? You see, theology is the study of whom? 
God. When you have a surface-level theology, because you refuse to go underneath the surface, guess what? You end up having a surface-level God and a surface-level relationship with God. Let me give you an example. I'm going to walk through one particular aspect of our life, give you three, three ways, three examples of this in regards to dealing with suffering and grief. In Band-Aid theology, we develop, here's one, one aspect of this, is we develop a monotone form of worship. See, in North American Christianity, we lack a theology of suffering because of our Band-Aid God and our Band-Aid theology, and it takes effect in our worship services, doesn't it? We major in what? We major in praise songs, and we minor in lament. You know, last week, ESPN, their statistics wing, I think it's called 539, all they do is study deep statistics, and we went through and showed the pattern of Christian hymns the last couple hundred years. And where Christians used to talk about suffering, ESPN is acknowledging it. Where, they, they, where they, we used to sing about lament, now all we sing about is joy, and just how, just how happy life is. And we're just singing na, 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 na through life. Now listen, na, na, na is my 18-year-old month's favorite, son, favorite song. But he's 18 months. If that's where you stay, right? That's milk. Lament. We need a theology of lament, theology of suffering. We, hoped, we hope we exposed that and showed you how to do that this morning. Lament is the ancient art of crying out before God. And it doesn't offer a quick fix or a tidy theological answer. It is theological, but it doesn't provide a tidy answer. Instead, it provides us with a means of honest and raw expression in times when our grief is frankly too much to bear and too complex to communicate. That's what lament is. Lament invites us to bring ourselves fully to a God who can handle our pain. You hear that? That's theological. You don't have a wimpy God who can't handle your tears. He's not like the insecure parent like I am, who when my daughter cries, I feel like I'm a bad parent. When you cry to God, he says, come here. Your God is strong and your God is powerful. Scripture scripture unapologetically embraces the full range of the human emotional experience. An Old Testament scholar named Walter Brueggemann says this, Israel at her best knew how to trust God in the midst of deep pain. And here's what he goes on to say, Israel unflinchingly saw, well not all the time, but some of the times, unflinchingly saw and affirmed that life as it comes, along with its joys, is beset by hurt, betrayal, loneliness, disease, threat, anxiety, bewilderment, anger, hatred, and anguish. The study of a lament may suggest a corrective to the euphoric, celebrative notions of faith that romantically pretend that life is sweetness and joy, even delight, and maybe suggested that the one side, one renewal of today, has in effect driven the hurtful side of experience into the obscure corners of faith or completely out of Christian worship entirely. Do we grieve in our worship services? We ought to. We're not living in a happy-go-lucky world. You see, so many of us, we have what's called an over-realized eschatology. That's where we, we seem to think that the Christian life, we have heaven now. Now, only in America, only in the West, can we have such a ridiculous notion. Leads us to the second, second point. In a band-aid theology, we develop an apathetic longing for heaven. Because we don't acknowledge and deal with the depths and pains of our souls from life's hurts, we don't think much about heaven. We are so satisfied in the delusion of our bubbles that we actually don't desire it. It's too good down here, or our coping mechanisms are too phenomenal. This is in large part why we can't simply 
We can't simply sing the songs of today's Christianity. You see, in, in times of old, where the hymn writers would lose five children in two years, they had to lament. Their theology and their hymns was not shallow, band-aid theology. Let's just move on to the happiness part of it. They would acknowledge the pain and the sorrows of this life. We need to sing the songs of the Negro spirituals because there, there they gave us the voice of believers who were living in captivity, a full realization that this world is not our home. And what do we hear throughout those spirituals? A longing for heaven. We don't long for heaven. We have too much of it supposedly here. We're too happy with our drink and our sweet songs and the vapidness of our life to long for heaven. Third, in Band-Aid theology, we develop a shallow experience of God himself. And this gets to the heart of it, doesn't it? When we ignore and push down our emotions, we create a shallow and unhelpful response to life's pain. And there is a great example of this in the Bible when we do this. In Jeremiah, in Jeremiah, the people of Israel are going to go through immense sorrow, immense sorrow because of their sin. And the prophet Jeremiah is coming and he's indicting the leaders of his day for their band-aid theology because they minimize the reality of the people's slavery. They had abandoned the ancient past for quick fixes and short-lived therapies of that day. Even the most respected of them like to just kind of say, it's okay, it's all right. Eugene Peterson, in his paraphrase of Jeremiah 6 in his book called The Message, says it this way. It's, it's so great the way he describes their voice. He says, prophets and priests and everyone in between twist words and doctor truth. My people are broken and shattered, and they put on band-aids, saying, it's not so bad. You'll just be fine. But I say, things are not just fine the prophet Jeremiah. If we ignore our emotions, in particular the dark and painful ones, in order to move to an easier and happier and more surface level things, then we undercut our experience of God and his redemptive and deep healing purposes in our life. Some of you don't have a very deep relationship with God because you refuse to deal with the depth of your brokenness. Saw yesterday a girl in our church who's been involved in the campus outreach named Carmen Aranda wrote on her Facebook wall contemplating about a year ago the loss of a friend in a car wreck. In the process of grief that she's gone through this past year, I asked for permission to share this for you from that post. She said this, There aren't words that you can post to express how hard it is to lose someone you love. However, I'm thankful for a God who hears me cry out, regardless if I have the words to describe my pain or there are just tears. Last summer on June 9, I got one of the worst phone calls from my mother that my friend had passed in a car accident. I still can't say what my heart felt and has endured for the past year, but I'm thankful for a family who feels pain with me and a God who lets me cry in my worst states. The past year, I've experienced probably the hardest and yet most growing year of my life. Imagine that. There was a point where I questioned my faith. That I want to believe in a God who allowed so much pain, a God who didn't cure me, supposedly. Through my questioning and searching endurance and prayer, I'll say I've never experienced more of Christ than in this past year. There are days that have been ridiculously hard, but without a doubt, I've been more connected to God. Without the life of Christ and his ability to overcome death, I would have no hope. I would have no way to see past my circumstances. Yet in Christ I can stand with all my baggage of not being able to understand, knowing I am heard, I am comforted, and there is a God on the other side who takes delight in me, even 
in my darkest states. The voice of a 22-year-old engaging with loss. And she ends referencing Psalm 18.6, which says this, In my distress, I called upon the Lord. To my God, I cried for help. From his temple, he heard my voice, and my cry to him reached his ears. The voice of the Psalms, the voice of a modern-day Christian. Sufferings opens us up to the possibility of an invasion of God's grace into our hearts. It's the moment of rescue and redemption. Emotions are like messengers from the front line of the battle zone of life. And so often our response is to kill the messenger. <laughs> Peace that passes all understanding is possible. But more often it only comes occasionally. It's an occasional refuge that comes only after wrestling with God. We say it. We say, oh, we, we quote that verse. So I, May the Lord give them a peace that passes all understanding. But do we understand it? There's a wrestling that happens before you get there. Therefore, we don't, don't assume in res- that resolving and being done with your turbulent emotions is the key to meeting with God. It's actually in engaging with the inner mayhem of your life that you meet God there. In other words, let me summarize it this way. This is a journey that exposes the deepest questions of your hearts. You won't discover the kind of answers that alleviate struggle necessarily. But you can encounter a person. That's God's answer to suffering, to grief. There's one who enjoys you, who comes in and and joins with you in your joy and walks with you in your sorrows, who exalts in using darkness to reveal the brilliance of his infinite goodness. That's who God is. And hope, I'm asking you, brothers and sisters, throughout the summer, that you will ask God to meet with you in various experiences of your life, and we come to that. One final thought this morning, point three that God has given us a guide for our emotions. Our emotions are complex, right? Jeremiah 17, the heart is deceitful. It's all over the place. Therefore, we need a guide. This is right where we ended last week. Our guide for the pilgrimage of our emotions is the Psalms. God hasn't simply said, good luck figuring it out. No, no, no. He sent one before us. Perhaps no section of scripture more poignantly expresses the inner world of our heart and more vividly reveals the emotional life of our God than the Psalms. The Psalms help us understand and describe our emotions. Listen to John Calvin. John Calvin. Right? That's how we think of him, right? He offered this insight, though. What various and resplendent riches are contained in this treasury? It were difficult to describe, and I have been wont to call this book, not inappropriately, an anatomy and of all parts of the soul. For there is not an emotion of which anyone can be conscious that is not here represented as a mirror. John Calvin a great thinker, he felt God through these psalms. The psalms mirror the soul, and we look into them, and we see ourselves, and we come to understand our, our emotions better and see them as theological. The psalms also help us simply just give voice to our emotions. When you don't know how to pray, the psalms help you pray. When you don't know how to sing, the psalms help you sing. So often in our grief and pain, and yes, in our joys, we come to a place where we don't even know how to describe our feelings. God's given us a book that does that. Isn't that great? The songs and poems, the psalms are written to, written to awaken and express and shape the emotional life of God's people. Lastly, the psalms teach us the posture and place of voicing our emotions. The psalms were composed in poetic form. They were theological propositions that are necessary for understanding the truth. But ultimately, understand this. All truth is relational. You know why? Because who is truth? God is truth. 
All truth is relational because God is truth. And therefore, the Psalms bring you into commerce and dialogue with God himself, with the truth giver. Poetry is God's invitation to come glimpse his character and to lay your emotions at his feet and to bask in his truth. You see, the Psalms, even the moments of rage against God, move towards God, not away from God. The Psalms direct our voices and our hearts towards him. The direction of the Psalms is always toward the throne room of God himself. So I end with this quote from, from Allender again to finish. The Psalms do not offer an analytical treatment of emotions. They do, are not a how-to text for which we can extrapolate four easy steps to resolving difficult emotions. Such simplistic reductions of our inner world and life itself strip the heart of calling out to God in the darkness of his mysteriousness involvement with us. Instead, the Psalms invite us to question God. But they do this in the context of worship. They are the hymnal used in public worship. God invites us to bring before him our rage, our doubt, our fear, our terror. But he intends for us to do so as a part of worship. This is the kind of emotional struggle we must engage in if we are to fathom the nature of God's heart for us. Would you come and join that journey with us this summer? We start with guilt next week. Will you pray with me? God, this has been emotional. Um, Lord, this has been thought-provoking. Gracious God, I pray that those in this room, um, I think in particular southern men, it's not fair, it's not just them, but Lord, it, any in this room who, have, who are emotionally closed off because they have felt and the, the message that has been given to them is um, God doesn't want to hear your emotions. That part of you, you've got to shut down, you've got to close off. Lord, I pray that the invitation here from your word, from the delights of voicing our greatest cries in the Psalms would invite us out of our darkness. It would invite us to come and express before the throne of Jesus how we feel, to lay our deepest anguishes and joys at your feet. And gracious God, more than anything, Lord, emotion for the sake of emotion is silliness. What we long for is to know you. And so, God, I pray that as we, if you would be so good by your spirit to open this door of, our, of who we are and this aspect of our hearts, and as we walk through the complexity of it and the difficulty of it, that we would meet you. That's what we long for, God. So I pray that that would be the result this morning, that even if nothing else I say is remembered, that people would meet Jesus in all of his glory and all of his goodness. And I pray this in the name of that Jesus. Amen.